0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and our daf of the day, masachet Kitubot, daf ayin hei, page 75. Page 75 is a little bit of an unpleasant daf because we're talking here about physical disqualifications um, that can be used to negate a betrothal, which just the very concept of that is disturbing and concerning. Uh, what I do find particularly interesting is the concept that we'll see inside in a moment that there's a parallel between the physical blemishes of the woman going into betrothal and a Kohain who would have been going in to serve in the Beit HaMikdash in in doing the temple service. And those same blemishes are like, they're the same issues, um, which is an interesting comparison or parallel or whatever, which seems to kind of, I don't know, I don't think it makes it better. I don't think it like eases the discomfort about the, you know, negating a betrothal because of a blemish, especially when you see what some of these blemishes are. But on the other hand, there's a backdrop that a context that actually, you know, it it, it gives us, you know, both in terms of historically and perhaps religiously, um, uh, a background that maybe makes it make a little more sense, even if it's still displeasing. So the, the man here says, "Call <laughs> min so all of the blemishes that would disqualify the Koanim that will disqualify a woman's betrothal, and that all of that is in the Tosefta. And then they added, here we're adding to those um, other blemishes, which we don't even need to get into all of the details. Um, we're going to add sweat, a mole, and a smelly bad breath. Re'ach hapeh. V'hani lo and so the government wants to know, like, didn't those extra blemishes that you're now adding on for the woman for her betrothal, wouldn't that have also disqualified the koanim, right? If we're going to say that this lines up, shouldn't that also line up? And wasn't it a problem for them? But there's a Mishnah that says, and this is now regarding blemishes of animals who are going to be used as korbanot. What circumstances would they be um, disqualified from being used as korbanot? As a cane, va so, what is this? It means an, uh, an animal that is old or sick or just really filthy. And the Gemara says that these blemishes, uh, the animal blemishes, old, sick, and filthy, right, whether the are temporary, it's a temporary state or it's a permanent state. They're going to make people specifically here, the Kohanim disqualified in that same way that the animals would have been disqualified. Um, meaning filth and sweat and perhaps age. I don't really understand how you get the old and the sick, sick, I guess if it's an infirmity, but simply age alone should not really disqualify. So it's, you know, there's some ambiguity here in terms of how it would be brought down for Halacha in each of the different categories. But, um, but let's move on again. The idea, you know, the idea that a person's sweat would disqualify them from uh, for a betrothal. So I understand if that what that means is some, you know, extreme condition. I, even that I wouldn't really understand it, right? But but if we want to say that a person has a blemish because of an extreme condition of of sweat, fine, but you know, it is also perfectly human normal in warm weather to sweat. So I, again, I find this the whole context here to be a bit, dis, you know, disturbing. Bukumar goes into each one of these categories. Like what are the terms w- that, that brings about the bad breath? What are the terms where, how the person got a mole and how large is a mole and how, to what extent is it really regarded as a blemish? Um, you know, I'm reminded of a- anytime someone wants to talk about a mole as a blemish, um, we think of, I think Marilyn Monroe, who's, you know, seen as very beautiful and with a, of you know, colloquially called beauty market that was quite pronounced, which presumably would have been a blemish, right? But in her case, or for for her in particular, it was not. Um, okay, so we have all of these different categories. We get to the towards the the Gemara here is going to lead into a Mishnah, and as we get there, we have a statement from Rev Chista um, Rev Chista Megava So Rev Chista says, I heard about this matter, meaning all of these, um, these blemishes and the moles and where they're going to be and so on, he heard about it from a great man. And who was that great man? Um, it says it was Rabbi Sheila. Fine, Rabbi Sheila was a great man. And he said, Rabbi Sheila said that if a dog bites a woman and there's a scar there, that would be a blemish. Um, a woman who's got a thick voice is also going to be a blemish. Now, what does that mean, a thick voice? I, I can't tell you what the sound of that is, but the, it's apparently the contradiction or the opposite of the statement, um, um, which is from Shir Hashirim, which is your voice is sweet and your appearance is pleasant, the implication being that this thick voice is the opposite of that sweet voice, so it would then be problematic. Tani Rabinatan Bira, Ben Dadei Isha Tefach. So what happens? Rabinatan Bira says that if there's a tefach, the hand's breadth between a woman's breasts, meaning that that a woman's breasts are a little bit further apart, I suppose, then the question is, you know, What does that mean? It doesn't. He doesn't. He hasn't yet said. Is that a mum? Is that a problem? Whatever. So the claim here is that the tefach, the hand-breadth between a woman's breasts, is perfect, considered very beautiful. But then the question is, what is it? What's the blemish, right? And then the concern is. You know, if that level, if that size gap would be considered a blemish or what's considered normal. And then bias says that the width of three fingers is what's normal as a to a whole hand's breadth. And then the Gemar goes on to say, Tanya, Rabbi Natan Omer, Kol Isha Shadadeha, Gassin, Michel Chavrote, Harezimum. And this is, I feel like, you know, let's really line everybody up and make a beauty contest, right? Meaning it's establishing one woman's um standard of beauty based on the other woman's standard or the other women's standard of beauty, where Ravnathan says, any woman who has breasts that are larger than those of other women is considered a moon. Now, you know, I suppose again we can talk about an extreme case, but otherwise really what's happening is you've got like a, a lineup to say, well, you know, the person whose breasts are larger is a problem. And then what and the smallest breasts are the perfect ones? Like this is, I I said to you, In preparation, like uh, was this considered? You know, did Chazal themselves? Did Rabbi Natan himself here when he's talking about this? Think about this in a in seriously in the context of a blemish. Meaning, when we're talking about an animal. I understand there's a concern of um the perfection of the animal on the mizbeach, but when you're talking about com- relative beauty, one person standing next to another. And never mind the fact that, you know, beauty in the eye of the beholder and all like that. I, I feel like this is um, somewhat of great concern, let's say. Um, yeah, and also
1: people are attracted to different things. I mean, this passage is just, you know, you look, read one of these passages and you're just like, okay, the Gemara is written by men. I don't know what else to say. You know, we don't have <laughs> a, we don't have a parallel passage where women describe what's beauty in men, at least that I know of. We still that have I, more years of the
0: job. I think that's true as well. I just want to finish up this piece here because the they don't redeem themselves, but but slightly. Meaning they at least acknowledge that there's greater complexity here. I'm Reb Meisha de Reb ben Levi, de Reb ben Levi, Tefa. So Rev Meisha, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that name right, says in the name of Reb Yoshua ben Levi that if the, the person's... Um, breasts that are a moon, it would mean that they are a, a full tefach larger than, quote unquote, the norm, whatever the norm might be. Again, it, I, I would say it's not just beauty is in the eye of the beholder and that people are attracted to different things. Societal norms have shifted over time. We know that also from, you know, you look at what's considered beautiful in the Renaissance and beautiful in the, in the era of Twiggy, it's a completely different kind of look. Um, or in uh, the
1: era. Let's be updated in the era of Instagram and filters.
0: Also, that yes, <laughs> fair point. So, but the, and then the Gemara wants to know, you know, did this ever happen? And the answer is yes, yes. In fact, there were such cases. Somebody who had such large breasts, and um, the Gemara answers here. <laughs> I saw Rabbi Baruchana says and this Gemara. I think is even a little famous. Said he saw a particular Arab woman who threw her breast behind her and nursed her children the implication is you know over her back and i can't begin to tell you what that means um but at the very least there's an acknowledgement that it's not that you know look the person who's nursing her child with such large breasts is doing just fine right i i don't i don't have a good i don't have anything useful here i don't think no,
1: there's really nothing useful.
0: <laughs> I mean again, my question is my question is, did somebody kind of write down the the male bonding notes that were the equivalent of locker room talk and it's in the Gemara? Or were or was this really like a con of, you know, nullifying a betrothal, which seems to be really rather a big deal, um, if we're talking about this kind of blemish i i
1: I think it's legalistic in the way we've seen that tom would be multiple times right that they're willing to take something that to us feels offensive and they will totally turn it and just make it into a straightforward legal art you know legal discussion and that's what they're doing here what's considered to be a woman a woman you know
0: except for that we still have a concept of and the fact that this is the essential table conversation you know, I, I find it hard to imagine that this was actual table conversation, for that matter, right? Meaning, I understand if there were to be, I'll tell you when I understand the blemish as a as a potential canceling of a betrothal is if there was lying, right? If there was dissembling to say the person never knew that this woman had this, this doesn't such deformity. I think that when you're talking about comparative breast size, we're not talking about deformity to begin with. I feel like I feel it feels to me like you know spying on the locker room conversation and it made it into the camera i'm not i don't want to be that disrespectful not really right meaning so yes i understand the legalistic point but it reads a little differently than that because why is this because it's irrelevant right it's irrelevant to any functional connection between a husband and wife between like there's no i don't know that's this is why i have a, a question on this stuff
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yes. And I think it's also for you know, to see, you know, today when there's a lot of discussion about like breastfeeding in public and things like that, it, you know, in that we over sexualize the breast. Well, like the breast is being sexualized here too. Like there's no discussion about like the functionality of the breast here. It's meant here, you know what I mean? Uh you know, it's sort of meant to be like it's it's there for a man to gaze at and decide what's beautiful or not. So,
0: Which is exactly why I think it's a strange Gemara.
1: Yeah. And yes, that is a clear feminist reading.
0: Okay. I'm going to go <laughs> back
1: to the Mishnah that's here. So now we get into a sort of more legalistic piece of this issue of Mumim. Hayuba Mumim, Bo Avihah. So let's say she acquires a blemish and she's still in her father's house, right? She hasn't gotten married yet. Right, but she's betrothed. Right? So she, so let's say she develops a mum later after she's in, you know, does a Since she's in her father's house, the father is the one who has to bring proof, okay, um, that this mum developed after the russine. And then they use an expression here of the nice, right, which is his field was flooded. So this is a halakhic term uh, that we see often, which just means it's like when your field is flooded, it's like it's an act of nature. It's just a bad thing that happened to you. Right. So in other words, the idea here is, is that this would actually be the husband's misfortune. Right. That if he can bring proof that this happened after the betrothal, the father can bring proof. It's the husband's beneath the class. His field was flooded. Something bad just happened to him. Okay. Interesting choice of language here. But let's say she goes into the domain, into the reshut of the Baal. Right? The husband is one who has to bring proof that she had these blemishes before Erosin. And if he can... Then it's considered to be a mekach ta'ut, meaning it was an invalid transaction because, in other words, it happened under false pretenses. Dibur Rabbi Meir. This is the opinion of Rabbi Meir. The Chachamim say it has to do with what type of moon is discovered later on. If it's a, you know, a hidden moom, right, a hidden blemish, yeah, then you know, okay, this could possibly have happened. But the, those are the ones he can bring a claim on. But a, a public moon, something that is visible to everybody, he's not allowed to bring anything about it because presumably he should have seen it ahead of time. And this is a very interesting qualification. If there's a bathhouse in that city, right, where people, pu- people, people bathe in groups, it was communal bathing, it was public, right? Private, you know, hidden moon one could not, uh, one could not, um, uh, he can't bring a claim about, who both because the idea is, is that he probably would have sent his relatives, or in other words, it would have been known, she would have been naked in front of other people in the town, that people would have known if there was a moon that they needed to know about. Okay, again, sort of an interesting, uh, Mishnah, exactly about sort of like, how would you prove or who lies the burden of proof on? And that's basically what the Gemara is going to talk about. We'll read it tomorrow because they're going to bring a parallel case uh, from other areas in Halakha, like who needs to bring the burden of proof. Here on this staff, what they do with this is they start off with a discussion about trying to figure out the beginning of the Mishnah versus the end of the Mishnah. Is it like Rabbi Yeshua or is it like Rabbi Gamlio, who are a member our Tana'im earlier than um, than Ravi um, and uh, you know exactly trying to figure out who's the Tana, who's teaching uh, parts of this Mishnah itself. But Abaye basically comes at some point, right, um, and uh, and you know sort of raises um, the following issue, right, where he says uh, where he says the following. Um, I just got to get to that part of the uh, uh, that right right? Abaye, he's answering back to Rava, and he says right? If she goes into the elu, right? That it, that that the Baal is the one who has to bring the proof, right? right? And that then it would be a mekartaot, so the Gemara basically can infer from this that what? He has to bring the proof that these blemishes were there before the Aerosene, right? And then his claim would be accepted. But if he proves, right, or if the only proof he has is that, that those blemishes were there after the Aerosene, no, then his claim is not accepted. Va'amai, right? But why? Lema kan kan hayu, right? Why can't we say that it's just they were discovered after the Aerosene? right? But they could have been there, um, but they were also, right, but they could have been there before the A seen themselves. And then Abai and Robert are going to go back and forth about that a bit. So tomorrow we'll see the conclusion of that and we'll read about that tomorrow, the conclusion. But again, really what it's trying to get a do discussion of is how does the burden of proof work and who is the person who needs to bring uh, the burden of proof? And again, I think it's just interesting to see, you know, in today's world with like social media and like, Nothing is hidden anymore. Everything is google right, in a certain way. Like, here you really sort of relied on information or how you gathered information. You went to the bathhouse. Things were not as publicly available as they are in today's stage.
0: I think it's interesting that the the whole discussion shifts to the burden of proof. I find that to be a more interesting conversation, let, more palatable, more like, Okay, you know, like, is this going to work? Is this not going to work now? Is something false? Is something Is somebody lying? Right. Like there's partially there's more drama. I suppose that does, you know, drive a story better, so to speak. But as compared to the movement discussion, which I find to be like, like labels without anything behind them, so to speak, except for, again, maybe I'm being unfair because maybe movement are worse than I realize.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see the conclusion of this discussion tomorrow. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. us Reviews and I'll make a podcast. Thank you to Eat Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about the stop on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>